Hi there, guys. Welcome back to the Matt Brown Show, and thank you, as always, for pushing play. Today, I am joined by Peter Triton, who has an incredible story of becoming an international cocaine smuggler. Yes, that's right. So Peter became an unlikely international drug kingpin until his arrest in Ecuador in 2005. He spent nine years in some of the most dangerous prisons in South America before being released in 2015. He was even nicknamed Posh Pete, by his underworld colleagues because of his incongruous appearance and accent. I spoke to Pete about what it was like in one of the world's scariest prisons, how he became an international drug trafficker, and what his life is like now. Now, the reason this interview matters so much, guys, is that this is an entrepreneurial story, and you'll hear the parallels and familiarities of your own entrepreneurial journey to what Peter's story is today. And so pay careful attention, guys, about how the power of some life choices can really make the greatest difference in your life, both positive and negative. And don't forget, guys, if you'd like to join the conversation or get more amazing content like this, head on over to my YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button. And I would love to hear from you there. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. And we're live. Hey, guys, welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. Uh, today, I'm joined uh, by Peter Triton from England, who's got a yep. most, the most incredible story. Uh, I came across uh, your story, Peter, um, I think it was on Lad Bible. You were doing an interview there. Lad Bible? No, I've not done one for Lad Bible. Was it Lad? Who, who am I thinking of? In, insider, maybe? No, or Vice? Vi- Vice, Vice. That's the one. Right, that's okay. Yeah, that's a few years ago. By the way, Lad Bible's a great channel, just saying. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, dude, you, you were like a hardcore drug smuggler who got pretty, like, basically pretty got nailed. Um, we get into the details around this, but it's uh, not often I get to to have a chat to someone that's really been through hell and come out the other side with a new perspective. Yeah. So, um, so as my audience knows, and as I just told you, Peter, like, you know, I'm in recovery as well. So, um, you know, addiction is something that affects a lot of people. And this is a, a different angle to, you know, the story I know. Uh, I yeah. know dealers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. I don't talk to them anymore. All right. Yeah, so I don't, don't get any ideas here. Uh, but yeah. certainly, um, you know, this is a subject that's dear to my heart and affects a lot of people. And this is a different type of story. And I don't think that's, you know, like featured on CNN, you know, inside how to smuggle drugs. You know what I mean? So, so, yeah, yeah. so I want to kind of get into all of this stuff with you today, Peter. So super excited to have you on the show. Thank you again for your time. Thanks, um, man. So, dude, why don't you walk us back to the beginning? Like, um, you know, how does this, uh, where does the story start? Because I think we know where it ends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really want to kind of go take people back to the beginning. So, like, how did you get into dealing? Were you, you know, like, were you using and then it just kind of became like a way to make money? Like, how did the, how did the, you know, uh, the story start? Yeah, I mean, basically, I, I first got into drug dealing at a very young age. Uh, my dad used to smoke uh, hashish. Uh, so as I was growing up, I was growing up around him smoking uh, hash and his friends coming around and partying and, you know, you know, drugs being around and being quite sort of commonplace and normalized to me. And at the age of 10, my parents got divorced. And uh, me, and my, me and my younger sister stayed with my dad. And um, I, I, I'm just trying to, yeah, I, I think the first occasion I ever smoked any hashish was I was about 11 or 12, something like that. I'd uh, found 
I think it was about an eighth, which is like, what, three and a half grams of uh, yeah. squidgy, squidgy black, mm-hmm. Pakistani hash. Um, at my step, my, my, my newly formed stepbrother, well, not newly formed, but my uh, new stepbrother had, um, had a party and I'd gone down into the basement in the morning where they'd been smoking and found this eighth of hash. So I tried that with my friends. And then what really kickstarted it all was my mum's new partner had two sons who were both older than me. One was really heavily involved in the illegal rave scene, you know, the acid house parties, mm-hmm. the, the warehouse parties of, yep. of the era. This is like late, uh, well, mid, heading towards late 80s, the mm-hmm. end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. So I started wanting to obviously emulate my older stepbrothers, wanted to go along to these parties. And when I started going, I realized that it was very easy to get away with dealing drugs at these parties because there was no, there was no, there were no police. There was no control. The police just let us get on with what we were doing and, you know, left you to it basically. Mm. Uh, My father was a builder. My mum was like the, well, uh, obviously before they got divorced was the homemaker but she was basically uh, unemployed so there wasn't much money around at home so I decided to start selling uh, some hash and stuff to fellow students just to offset the cost of partying at the weekend Mm. and that developed into selling uh, ecstasy pills uh, um, LSD amphetamine and this went on through my throughout my teenage years um, up until the point at which I got caught um at six on college i finished at school um did all my gcse's did quite well academically i was you know quite gifted academically i was uh, captain of the cricket team right i played in the rugby team i was you know a real all-round sports person um went off to six on college in a, in a town nearby called sirencester and it was there that i ran into trouble with the police um, I'd carried on dealing, going to the, all the illegal raves. I'm now about 17 years old. And one morning I'm about to leave college and had like uh, about two ounces of hashish cut up into deals on me. And as I'm about to go out the front door, there's a bang at the front door and it's two undercover police officers who have been sent around. I've obviously been grassed up. Somebody's informed on me. So I get arrested, get taken in. Uh, end up getting sentenced to, I think, about 12 months probation or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that sort of stopped me dead in my tracks because I didn't want to jeopardise my future going to university. Uh, And also I saw the effect it had on my mum, my dad. Obviously, they they were really upset. So I sort of stepped away from dealing for a while. (laughs) And got my, you know... Bit of a timeout, you know. Yeah, got, I got my A level sorted out, uh, which is uh, I don't know what the equivalent is in South Africa, but it's the, the exams you do prior to go to university. Yeah. So got those, got four A levels. Uh, managed to secure uh, a place at Cardiff University to read archaeology. Went off to Cardiff, and it was there that things really started to, well, things took off again. Basically, got there. Uh, you know, with the full intent of studying, becoming an archaeologist, all the rest of it, and steering well away from drugs. But, you know, student life, every a lot of this is like the first time most people have ever tried drugs. 
is when they go to university, isn't it? As students, you know, because they're away from their families, they're away from any sort of controlling element. So I, th- I think a lot of students then start becoming involved in drugs or, or, or certainly start to experiment with drugs. So there was a big demand for all sorts of recreational drugs that wasn't being met. People didn't know where to get them. So there were a lot of people just sort of running around asking where they could source uh, drugs such as um, uh, ecstasy, amphetamine, hashish. And it was the first occasion that I was actually asked for cocaine uh, by, by a fellow student. So I saw this as an opportunity because trying to live on the student loans and, you know, again, not having much financial support from home, yeah, I was struggling. So I made the fateful error or fateful decision to get well, become involved in drug dealing again. And it's an easy way out, isn't it? I mean, well, it's an easy way in and an easy way out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. so so start dealing. I mean, it was only small scale to begin with. I mean, it always is. You know, yeah. you start. You know, the the way it starts is you. I, I mean, as far as the cocaine went, anyway. I, this guy asked me to get. I think it was half an ounce, fourteen grams. So, I ring up my stepbrothers in my hometown and I said, "Look, can you can you connect me to someone that sells cocaine?" Because it wasn't something I'd dealt with before. And they said, "Sure." Gave me the phone number of this guy I sort of knew of anyway. Went and met him, bought the first half ounce of cocaine, took it back to Cardiff, sold it to the guy who wasn't particularly good. Uh, the guy said, look, can you get more? Uh, of course I can. So, you know, start bringing, also start bringing ecstasy back down, hashish, everything, you know, amphetamine, some LSD, not much of that, but some. Uh, but it was the cocaine that really took off. Um I quickly ended up meeting like the local dealers for the university who were from Cardiff city itself and start supplying them in turn. So the, the volumes start escalating, growing. uh, And the guy that I was sourcing the cocaine from in my hometown turned around and said, look, I don't want to be involved in this sort of amount because it had gone from half an ounce, uh, like a, a week up to, nine ounces then half a kilo and then a kilo very quickly within the space of i don't know two or three months or something like that so he put me in touch with somebody in oxford who was in touch with people in london so i then go up and meet him he then introduced me to the main dealers in london who are importing tons of cocaine you know major crime families as it was back in the day Things have changed a lot in Britain now. Now you have the Albanians running pretty much everything here, whereas back then it was it was generally it was crime, British crime families made up of uh, you know father sons brothers who would control a certain area of a, of a city and and it was you know fan out from there. So I start bringing kilos of cocaine back down from London to start supplying. Uh, the dealers in Cardiff, they then introduced me to dealers that they have known further afield in Wales, you know, in the bigger cities nearby, in Swansea, Bridgend, Port Talbot, uh, the valleys of, of South Wales. And the amounts just kept getting bigger and bigger, obviously, because there's more and more demand. 
I end up dropping out of university in the second year because of the, you know, the stress of everything that I'm doing. Uh, along with trying to study, it just becomes too much. Unfortunately, drop out of university, move to the nearby city of Bristol, where my girlfriend was studying at the time. Uh, end up meeting even more people in Bristol. I'd already sort of been introduced to a couple of the main dealers there anyway. So I now start to apply people there. They make the conscious decision to fan out the operation further afield up into Scotland because the prices were even better up there. <laughs> so starts applying someone in Edinburgh, uh, someone in Glasgow. So you can imagine the, the you know, I, I, I've quickly within a within a year of starting this operation in Cardiff or say a year and a half, two years. I'm now supplying up to 10 kilos of cocaine a week, uh, up to a ton of hashish every 10, 10 days to two weeks, 50,000 pills a week, uh, 50 kilos of amphetamine a week, or maybe two weeks, every two weeks. I mean, just crazy amounts of drugs. And, you know, the, the, the connections that I've now made at this, this at the age of, what, 19, 20, 21, were just unbelievable, really. When I look back, I mean, the, the, the fact that I'd managed to make all these contacts so quickly was, like, to me now, is it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite incredible because I don't think you'd be able to do it these days. Mm. Because, like I say, the markets have changed, the market dynamics, the economics of it all have changed completely. Mm. So... The timing was... a. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. thing there um and I well at that point i mean i then get arrested uh in, eventually okay well i got arrested in, in britain before i ever got arrested in in ecuador which comes later later okay so in the in the year 2000 just after the millennium uh i think it was may in fact it was may the 16th 2000 um i'd gone to drop some cocaine off at somebody's house in the cotswolds near to where i was living at the time and unbeknown to me, the place was under surveillance. Uh, I've dropped three ounces of cocaine off on this guy. I've left, driven off. The police have raided the place. He's managed to flush most of the cocaine down the toilet. They've then come up the road after me, arrested me. I'm in a big red transit van, so he can't miss me. <laughs> so I get stopped, thinking it's like a, a uh, routine traffic stop, but it wasn't. 
they've opened the the uh, front of the van. They've gone straight for the briefcase that I had the drugs in. Found a couple of ounces. Uh, I think it was a couple of ounces of cocaine and some pills. And I saw an off shotgun in the back of the van, broken down into component parts. Uh, with I think it had some shells with it as well. Uh, so obviously I get arrested, uh, taken in to custody. They let. They then later after they eventually found my address because I wouldn't tell them where I lived. After they eventually find the place, they found a further 5,000 pills, uh, some more cocaine, um, I think about six or seven kilos of weed, some hashish, five kilos of amphetamine, and uh, yeah, a whole bunch of other stuff, like a, a sort of Aladdin's cave of criminality. <laughs> so... Uh, I end up getting sentenced anyway. I go, I go guilty after nine months. I'm on remand nearly two years because of the case uh, became complicated with my co-defendants being on bail. Uh, they then committed some other crime, got remanded, got bail again. So I had to wait until they, they their, their trial had gone through. So sit around for nearly two years waiting to get sentenced. End up getting five years, which was which was a touch at the time. But I'm throughout the 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 first period of of the sentence. I'm in maximum security conditions, category A conditions, not allowed to associate with anyone. All my telephone calls are recorded. My visits are behind glass. Um, I can't even talk to other prisoners. I'm held in solitary in a cell on my own. I get strip searched every day. Highly invasive. I they would close a whole wing down of the prison that I was in. To just to take me out to get my food i'd have two officers in front two behind everywhere i went was noted in a book it's called being on the book is is the the term that we call we that we give it so that you know for a sort of braver hippie type like myself at the time this was like a, a very brutal uh and sharp shock awakening to the reality of what i'd been doing at the time the police were adamant that I was connected to some major crime families in London, which inadvertently, obviously, I was, uh, you know. But being so wrapped up in it all, I hadn't sort of taken into account how deeply involved I'd become in in drug dealing. Mm. Um, again, you know, whilst I'm in prison, I don't touch any drugs and I'm not, I don't get involved in anything. And, uh, you know, I've had enough. You learn how to become a painter and decorator. When I get released, I set up my own company. Uh, my father being a, a builder still, uh, after he's done the building work, gives me the painting and decorating jobs. So I, you know, I make the decision to sort of go straight, steer away from crime. That lasts for a while, but you know, constantly getting phone calls from old old associates saying, "Look, do you want to get involved in this? Do you want to be involved in that? Uh, we could put this together. Why don't we do this? You can make a lot of money." And I'm saying, "No, no, no, no! Don't want to be involved. Don't want to know. It's caused me enough trouble already." But as time goes on, I'm painting and decorating, and I'm seeing it's not really going to go anywhere. I'm sort of caught up in the daily grind, the rat race. And one day, reality yeah. sucks, eh, Peter? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, I must—I don't know—I must have had a bad week or a bad day or something. And I get a phone call, and 
you know, I just make the decision. Yeah, fuck it. Actually, I am going to do something today. Uh, I've had enough of this. I want to make some serious money again. You know, going from having lived, you know, prior to being arrested, I was living in a in a like five bedroom wing of a manor house. Had so you know just stupid amounts of money washing around, but also a lot of pressure, a lot of paranoia, a lot of trouble. But yeah, you know, to some extent, it, it was. Sorry. Goes with well, the territory, yeah. right? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Some things you cannot change. Yeah. So whilst I'd been in prison, I'd read a article um, about these guys who'd been importing cocaine from South America. And the cocaine had been impregnated in plastic uh, garden patio sets, you know, you know, like for, that you have in your garden. And this had all come on the back of 9-11, which had just happened. So whilst I was sat in prison, I was watching the news and following current affairs and what was going on. And because of the heightened security around 9-11 or post 9-11, a lot of drug traffickers and mules were getting stopped in airports inadvertently, just caught up in the, in, in the melee and being arrested. So I quickly realized that the, the you know the the days of just getting on a plane with a briefcase or, or a suitcase full of cocaine in power form and flying them back into Britain were, were pretty much done and the this method of impregnation be it in clothing or or plastic or or whatever you could put it into was the future of, of cocaine trafficking that is unless you're working with corrupt officials. Well, I never liked that that method of working because it always goes wrong in the end. Mm. And you know that as soon as it does, they're going to roll over on you and you're going to be the one that ends up in the trouble and not them. So <clears throat> I'd said to my co-defendants who were with me, um, I said, look, if when we get out, if we decide to do anything again, uh, I think the only thing I want to do is import cocaine into Britain because it's small in volume and high in value and, you know, fairly easy to camouflage and hide. Whereas, you know, going back to the days of selling tons of hashish and running up and down to London, those days are finished for me because we're known to the police now and it's not going to take them long to work out what's going on if we, if we go back to doing what we were doing before we got arrested. So, you know, for me, that is the only thing I would be interested in doing if we decide to do something. So along comes this bad day that I have whilst painting and decorating it. And I phone, well, not obviously not the day, but, you know, a couple of days after or whatever, I, I phone uh, my contact in Oxford who who has a lot of people up in London. And I said, look, can you try and find me a source for cocaine in, in South America uh, through some Colombians up in London, Colombians, Peruvians, or whoever, so that we can try and start putting some deal together whereby we can import cocaine ourselves. <coughs> um, so he goes away and makes a couple of phone calls. Um, I, make, um, I make a couple of calls to somebody in Wales who I thought might finance the operation and I managed to secure uh, some financial backing off this guy, obviously illegal, um, to sort of bankroll the 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 importation side of things. 
So my guy in Oxford comes back to me and says, look, uh, I've managed to contact a Colombian in South London who's willing to meet you. Um, he's selling cocaine at the moment anyway. So what we did was uh, we went and met this guy on the pretext that we just wanted to buy some cocaine, like a kilo um, at a time, just to get to know him a little bit. So did that for a couple of times on about the, the third or well, yeah, second or third t- uh, meeting. I said to him, look, the actual the real reason I'm here is because I want to start bringing cocaine into Britain myself. Uh, this is what I can bring to the table, i.e. Uh, big customer base, uh, logistical support, all sorts of other stuff. Um, would you be interested in teaming up with me? And he turned around to me and said, well, look, actually, as it happens, we're already bringing cocaine into the country and we're bringing it in impregnated in rubber, in uh, which is in the ground sheets of tents. And I was like, wow, bingo, this, this, is, this is what I had in mind anyway. I mean, maybe not that exact method, but, you know, I, it was the impregnation method that I wanted to use. So it just seemed like it was, you know, a match made, well, not match made in heaven, but, <laughs> you know, it was, it was sort of destined to, destined to happen. So, <clears throat> um, you know, we, we discussed everything and, came to an agreement between me, him and a Chilean guy that we would start bringing cocaine in. Um, obviously, I had some finance off this guy in Wales, about uh, £30,000. So with that, we put together the first deal and had the first tent made, I think, which contained about, I think it was either four or five kilos of coke. So there's lots to get into that, Peter. So I'm going to let you finish and then I'm going to come back because I've got a few questions I want to kind of sure. you know, interrogate the story afterwards. So go ahead, keep going. Uh, yeah, so get this first tent made up in Cali in Colombia. And I decide that I want to do the first, I, I, want, I personally want to carry the first tent back into Britain myself just because if I'm going to start sending other people to do something I haven't already done, it just wouldn't have felt right and I wanted to have that experience and have the knowledge of what they might have to go through. And I just, I don't know, just being an, uh, uh, an overall adrenaline junkie, I wanted to do it myself. So I did. Uh, flew to Ecuador, uh, which we decided to use because it doesn't really produce cocaine itself. It's more of a transit point out of South America. Uh, it, it, the choice that we had, it was either between Venezuela and Ecuador because of there they both border Colombia and the, the guy that was uh our contact in Cali in the south of Colombia opted for Ecuador because he, he already had a, a a safe house in the capital of Quito uh, sorry in Quito the capital of Ecuador um so flew to Ecuador uh met up with him I was a little bit dubious that the cocaine was even in the tent so so eventually, you know, when, when he's picked me up and taken me to the safe house where the tent was being stored, he said, look, if you don't believe that the cocaine is in there, uh, just chew the little, just, you know, we slit the corner of the, the ground sheet and he said, chew the corner of that piece of rubber. So I chewed it and obviously my mouth went really numb. So I knew the cocaine was in there. I was like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so we packed the tent back up. It was a great big 10-man tent, uh, huge thing. 
probably weighed about 25, 30 kilos in total. And I'd go back to the airport a couple of days later to leave. And I'd forgotten about the luggage allowance. So I'm about 30 or 40 kilos over luggage allowance. I think it might have even been more. I'd bought my family loads of presents, loads of gifts of big ceramic plates and boxes of cigars and, you know, all sorts of crap. And there was this great big 10-man tent. So the, the, the staff at the check-in desk were like, why don't you get rid of this tent? You know, because I didn't have enough money to pay the excess. So they were like, you know, why don't you just get rid of that big night? You know, that old tent, you don't need that. And I was like, well, actually, I do need that. <laughs> Uh, so I just get rid of all these really fancy gifts and whatnot to people that work in the ho- in, in the in the airport shops and restaurants, which must have looked really suspicious. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, obviously the the difference in 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 the in the weight of my flying in of my arriving in Ecuador and then my departing is vastly different. So obviously something is up. So sure enough, I I land in Schiphol in Amsterdam. I'm transiting through there. And I get stopped by the police. They're they're waiting for me. As we, as we all come off the plane to change to the you know onward planes wherever the you know all the all the passengers are going, there's a row of uh, uh, drugs agents, uh, Dutch police, and all the passengers are filing through them. And I'm at the back of the queue, and I see one of the officers look down the line, see me obviously recognises my face and turns to all of his colleagues and says something in Dutch and they all look at me. So I know I'm getting stopped. And sure enough, I get pulled in and interrogated. And they said, look, where have you been? And I said, well, I've been in Ecuador and, you know, just for a holiday, always wanted to go to South America. Love archaeology. And luckily... I went to Ecuador to get a tent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I didn't. Obviously, I didn't mention the tent. The tent wasn't was in transit. Luckily for me, they never pulled the tent up. I must have gone from you know the first plane that I was on straight to the second plane that was going to England. So luckily for me, they they didn't bring it up into the into the room that they were uh, interrogating me, and they went through my bag, and I had leaflets from all the touristy type things I've been doing as cover. And I said, look, I've been there, I've been here, you know, I, what's the problem? And I thought, I'm, I'm fucked, you know, I thought I'm, I'm definitely screwed here. <laughs> and he's gone out of the room and he's come back in and he said, okay, you're free to go. Uh, sorry to have delayed your flight and whatnot. Uh, have a nice trip. And I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. got, got on the next flight to England thinking, no, this can't be right. They, they, there's no way that they've missed this. There's, uh, you know, there's just fucking no way. Land in England, fully expecting there to be a, like a, a big welcoming committee for me of, of British yeah. police officers. And there was nothing. I, I'm looking around the airport, the carousel, the tents going round and round the carousel. And I, you know, I thought, fuck it. I just picked it up and walked out. Didn't go, there were no customs officers, nothing. Couldn't believe it. Walked through. And that was when I was completely addicted to cocaine trafficking because I saw that this method that we were using was just so good that the fact I'd got it through Ecuadorian customs, I got it through the Dutch customs and British customs and being stopped and questioned and still got the thing through. Mm. I was like, wow, 
this method that we're using is obviously the it is obviously fantastic. So, Peter, if, if could we pause there for a sec? Because I, I want to, sure. I don't want to go too far and then have to come all the way back. Okay. So, so uh, Peter, um, so w- w- it's pretty crazy. Uh, listening to you pretty crazy, it's fucking crazy. It's <laughs> fucking crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. it's crazy. Also, just by the way, because the what you are telling me is a, a kind of like a, a, a bad quote unquote story of an entrepreneur choosing the wrong train. Sure, exactly. I, I am very entrepreneurial. And Dude, it's I, unreal. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's literally unreal. Like the fact that you, you know, you, you, you went with the market in the beginning and uh, some people are going to hate this conversation, but <laughs> yeah, sure. But you went with the market in the beginning. You, you, you used your network to kind of grow the thing. Uh, and I'm saying, guys, this is a bad, a bad idea. Don't do it, right? Yeah, obviously, so, this is, is yeah. But do not get involved more, in drug dealing. Like We're not more, condoning it no, whatsoever. No, no, it's, it's more the, the, the thinking uh, that that's interesting for me. And so, yeah. um, and then getting nailed failure, you know, going to prison, not something most entrepreneurs do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> luckily. Like super tax avoidant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, and then of course, you know, um, getting frustrated with the status quo, trying again, and then innovation with, uh, with obviously this new way of, of basically injecting, which I still don't understand how it's possible. So anyway, so there's yeah. lots, uh, the point is, is that this is a very entrepreneurial story, which is right up my audience's street. So, um, what I have to ask you though, is when you first got arrested, um, obviously you were super young, like you were like in your early twenties, I think. Right. Um, and so, uh, what the first major arrest when I went to prison. Yeah. Yeah. How old are you there? Yeah. I was like, uh, it would have been like, 23, 24, yeah. something like that. So, so yeah, so 23, early 20s. In your early 20s, you don't know jack shit. And typically when, you know, you get arrested, it kind of changes your worldview, right? Because especially yeah. if you're in like a, as you said, a maximum security prison. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it's not a nice place to be for someone who's 23 or, or, yeah. or for anyone. You know what I mean? Like you've got murderers in there, rapists, blah, blah, blah. And now here you are just kind of running a misdirected business. Um, and then you wind up in a cl- in a maximum class A security prison. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, how did that experience change you? Like, and obviously we can get into Ecuador and that experience a bit later. But that initial formative experience, how did it? How did? In what way did it change your your worldview? Uh, it obviously didn't change me enough, did it? Yeah, because totally. I carried on. <laughs> but um. um I don't know. It's a good question, really. We have to look back. Um, I mean, I, I think to some extent because I, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it didn't change me a lot, but uh, I, I, I don't know. You know why? I'm not because, sure. You know, the reason why I asked that is because typically, when or for, I haven't been arrested, thankfully, uh, but yeah. um, <clears throat> but you know, what I understand about prison is that it actually compounds the problem; it doesn't solve the solution. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, they call it the finished school of crime. Yes, that's uh, And whilst I was in prison, I mean, after the security around me sort of calmed down a bit, which took a good year, uh, you know, and then I had a little bit more freedom to integ- you know, integrate with the other inmates. Um, you know, of course, you end up meeting other criminals in there. Your, your criminal network expands. Uh, your criminal knowledge increases. You know, it, it, it they are just a finishing school of crime. Um, I think British prisons, you know, 
regardless of what people say, they are quite cushy, really, compared to my my later experience in the Ecuadorian prison system, which was just horrific. Mm. Uh, you know, for me to compare the two, I mean, I, I mean, you can't really compare the two because that's just so different. Mm. But um, certainly, certainly, the, the British prison system definitely made me reflect because obviously you have a lot of time. Well, I did anyway in solitary. Uh, and when I first went in there, they didn't have TVs in the cells. It was just you and your radio, if you were lucky to have a radio and a lot of books to read. Uh, so there was a lot of time for self-reflection and, you know, obviously you do beat yourself up a lot and, uh, examine why you've done things and why you haven't and the mistakes you've made. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a reflection is actually a skill. Um, and I think, you know, as entrepreneurs, we oftentimes just keep chasing the dragon. We're looking for that yeah. next hit. We're looking for that next sale. We, you know, we're looking to build the next thing and it's always a chase, 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 chase. Yeah, chase. And, you know, we, we never quite develop the skill of reflection. You know, the closest thing to reflection that gets taught to entrepreneurs is meditation and meditation is a skill that not everybody enjoys, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. or don't know how, you know, you, I don't know how to meditate. How the fuck do I do that? Uh, but, uh, but reflection is something you can do naturally because it's just, you've been reflecting your entire life on the shit that's been going on in it. You know, it's your parents, yeah. it's your brothers, it's your sisters, it's your, <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I, uh, I think another thing which is quite important to mention is that my mum was an alcoholic. Oh, really? So from quite a young age, you know, she was, she started drinking heavily, would have psychotic episodes. Uh, she's dead now. But, uh, I mean, the alcohol eventually killed her. Um, So, you know, there's quite a lot of trauma in my life from quite a young age. Uh, At the age of 14, my best friend died. We just had a game of tennis, came back, and he he suffered a brain hemorrhage just out of the blue. And by the age of 20, I'd actually witnessed eight people die in front of me, take their last breaths, which, I mean, you know, I, I even just a couple of days ago, I was watching TV and there was an old guy on there who broke down in tears, having seen one of his friends killed. And he said, and I think he must've been about 70 and he said, he'd never seen somebody die in front of him. Mm. And I thought, you know, in my life, the, but like I say, by the age of 20, I'd witnessed eight deaths from drug overdoses, from car accidents, heart attacks. You know, I tried to assist in saving these people and they died. Uh, I'd had a lot of personal uh, tragedy around me, friends who died, a girlfriend had been killed. I mean, all sorts. Uh, my stepbrother killed himself uh, when I got out of prison the first time, followed by his cousin in, in Glasgow in the same month of November. I was the last person to see my stepbrother alive. Uh, I mean, throughout my life, I've just been followed by death. And now, having gone through the, the Ecuadorian prison system for like nearly a decade, I mean, you can imagine the amount of death I saw there. Just daily, daily occurrence. Loads of my friends got killed. And I, I think that sort of trauma that I, that I went through at a very young age, particularly when my girlfriend was killed when I was 17 at college, it kind of created, that corresponded with the year that I got arrested for the first time I got probation. And it kind of... I never had any counselling or any help, and I think I, I'm. Well, I'm, I know that's been one of the reasons that 
that I, I think I've, to some extent, maybe I, I sort of lived life quite quickly because I didn't, you know, I was seeing all this death going on around me and maybe didn't see much future to some extent. So do you Maybe. think that, I don't know. yeah, but it's interesting to explore these things, right? So, I mean, a part, part of recovery sure. also in my life is also to do self-examination, right? To look at, well, you know, what led me to make those, those life choices, yeah. you know, because you can have a why, but you still need to choose. You sure. know what I'm saying? So it's a, it's a choice that, you know, it's like the, what I love to say is that, you know, we make decisions and then decisions make us, Yeah, but we don't, think about, well, what's driving this decision, you know, uh, yeah. or what's motivating me to start a business or what's motivating me to choose this path that you chose. Um, yeah. and we, and sometimes we, in my experiences is that, you know, you wind up, um, doing things on autopilot. So it's, just, I think very, very much a lot of what I did younger on was on autopilot. Uh, a big driving force for me, I remember was, that I kind of wanted to help my mum. I wanted her to stop drinking. You know, I wanted to kind of make things right. And, you know, there not being much money around throughout my childhood and throughout my teen years, I, you know, I kind of felt like I was needed to sort this, all, all the problems out. So, you know, being involved with drugs from a young age, it, it, it was just sort of, you know, like the natural thing to do. And because there's so many people around me who were selling drugs as well at the time or were involved with drugs, it was just like everybody was doing it. Mm. Well, that's what it felt like. Did you, so, did you regret? Because like, like I wanted to ask, like, what would you like to say to families? I mean, I know it's, it's a thing because... Oh, yeah, usually. I mean, I know for a fact. I mean, I said this on the podcast just the other day. I know for a fact that drugs I sold directly led to people dying. Mm. Or it... Well... I mean, obviously, it's the person's choice to take those drugs, but I know that these drugs have ultimately, somewhere down the line, led to people dying. Yeah, and yeah. So I don't know. Were you? I mean, what can I say? I mean, you know, it's it's a terrible thing. And were you? But the whole aware at the time, though, and you know what I mean? Not really. Yeah, it's kind of like you. This is what I mean by autopilot. I mean, I was also taking drugs as well. Yeah. Well, that's the that's when insanity starts. So exactly, yeah, it's the definition, are. right? Your life's unmanageable, and you know, only yeah. only recovery or program of recovery can restore you to sanity. So I, I get that, but I mean, you know, it's uh, I, I, it's interesting for me to to for you to have that experience, and for me to be curious around. Well, you know, how much was conscious, and how much was just you not giving a fuck and being on autopilot to to take care of your mom or to just find some sense of purpose or meaning in doing this thing illegal. Yeah. I think another aspect of it is as well, I I, particularly, this is prior to the Ecuadorian thing, particularly in the earlier days, I ended up quite quickly in a lot of debt as well, because a lot of these drugs, I mean, were being given to me like a, you know, quarter of a million pounds, 300,000 pounds worth on credit at a time, sometimes more. And <clears throat> quite often I would then give those, those drugs out in turn on credit. And, you know, being young yeah, and not very big, big, people didn't pay. So I, I very quickly ended up in, 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 a, in, in a bad position owing some really heavy people up in London and around here, you know, large amounts of money, like a quarter of a million pounds. 
and having to try and cover this. So you start juggling, you know, trying to sell more drugs to cover the debt and, you know, all just because, like you say, it just descends into insanity. Mm. And, you know, just the levels of stress and, and paranoia and fear, hence the sawn-off shotgun, you know, mm-hmm. living in the middle of the countryside. Yeah, it's nice, just, man. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's exactly what you see in movies. You know, it's kind of like great in the beginning. And, you know, if you think about the typical narratives, like, oh, rich money, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly shit goes south very quickly. And the guy. Yeah, and you're in the shit. Yeah, really. In a major way. It's like death, literally death. (laughs) Yeah. Or institutions or jail. So, you know, you had. That's the end of it. I mean, those are the, 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 you know, that's where it always ends up. Absolutely. You're either going to end up in prison, dead, or. Well, yeah, in, in, just in, in trouble. <laughs> mm. Tell me, uh, Peter, I'm very curious now to change gears and talk about the how the how the fuck do you inject <laughs> cocaine? How, how's it how's it made how, into rubber? How do you do that, man? Because like, it's not just rubber, wasn't it? It was like you were inject. It was all sorts of things: taint, material, blah blah blah. blah. Like, uh, well, I mean, the, 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 I mean, it, it can be put into all sorts of stuff now. It can be put into polystyrene. It can be put into wood. Uh, wood. They can, they. Wood, yeah. I mean, you could you could soak wood in it. I mean, you, a very basic method of impregnation is in clothing. So you put the, the coca, you put the cocaine, or, or or could be any other drug, pretty much, into a liquid form or a solvent form. You then soak something in that, i.e., paper or clothing. The the clothing or the paper or whatever it is will absorb a certain amount of the of the of the liquid with the drug in it. Uh, that then crystallizes, so you then, you know, then you can transport it. The, I mean, the method that we were using is a lot more advanced uh, and involved using, uh, basically, you would put it into liquid latex, which would then, first of all, it would have to be put into solvent, and uh, then it would be put into liquid latex, and then the two mixed up together. That would then set, we'd set that into very, very thin panels because the cocaine is only present on the surface. That's then hidden in whatever, uh, the ground sheet of a tent or, you know, whatever you can put it into to camouflage it, brought back to target country. And we would then have to extract it using various processes with pure alcohols, acids, and reconstitute the cocaine. So that's pretty crazy, man. In a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's not give uh, the chemists all the all the, all the tools there, Peter. Um, so, exactly. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's fascinating for me. I, I, I'm very like, I, I get really pissed off when I hear shit like, oh, it's the war on drugs and, you know, the DEA is going to basically go along and, you know, arrest these cartel dudes. And like, you can't, there's like, they didn't win the war, war on drugs. Terrorism. It's just, you know what I'm saying? It's just a huge fallacy. It's just, Drugs need to be decriminalized initially with a view to legalizing them, manufactured under license and heavily taxed. And particularly people that are, are being arrested users, they're the victims at the end of the day, really, because addiction, like you say, is a medical problem. And, it, you know, the way that they're going about it is it's making the situation worse. Everybody knows it. A lot of higher law enforcement officials will tell you exactly the same. They think drugs should be decriminalized and, and manufactured under license and strictly controlled by the government and taxed. But if you look at the amount of money that's made by them being illegal, i.e. The, 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 the judiciary, the prison service, the police, 
the you know the whole the whole all that and all the funding that all of these bodies get for the war on drugs it's a huge huge business isn't it it being illegal yeah if the, if it was legalized i don't think they'd actually make as much money of it a lot of people would be unemployed hmm. it's crazy though right that's your experience in you you're saying from a first-hand experience what this, the right approach is but i mean aren't we are we not starting to see this with um with uh, weed being decriminalized uh, in countries around the world do you not feel like yeah this may be the, yeah. the genesis of you know decriminalizing Hopefully. the system really because the system is the problem it's yeah. not the drugs yeah. it's the system that uh, yeah. um, uh, you know the drugs are the solution to a me problem but the system yeah. is what is creating the epidemic. And the system is Definitely. what you're saying. It's, it's the system that I think we should be questioning. Saying, okay, if you decriminalize it, what does the system then look like? Yeah, I agree. You know, um, yeah. Otherwise, it's kind of like you just – the problem is going to just take a different form. Would you agree? Yeah, exactly. I mean, people are always going to experiment with mind-altering substances or be it alcohol, tobacco, drugs, whatever. People are always going to look for some – form of escapism and you know when we realize that this problem isn't going to go away then you know you need to address that problem or or, or deal with it in some way that mm. is less harmful yeah 100 so let's talk about ecuador right so this is the the kind of the the hardcore part of the story now uh, yeah. So you you obviously wound up in a prison in Ecuador. How the hell did that happen? Who eventually? Got <clears throat> yeah. So we're bringing these tents in probably once every. We try to bring one in once a month, once every month and a half, something like that. So that's going on for a while. Uh, the police raided a laboratory in Crystal Palace in in London, and uh, arrested the Colum- my Colombian partner and my Chilean partner. Uh, they found, I think, three or four kilos of cocaine in powder form uh, that had just been extracted. Um, I was in Cali in Colombia at the time, so obviously didn't get arrested. <clears throat> um, my, my, well, the Colombian and uh, Chilean, my partners, were remanded into prison. And I eventually came back to Britain because obviously I was worried about coming back initially. Um <clears throat> came back and because I was the basically the only one left standing, it was down to me to keep things running. So I ended up taking over the whole show uh, and becoming like, the, well, it was just me running everything uh, with some help from the Colombian whilst I was in prison. He then got released after six months, but during the six months he'd been on remand in prison, he got, got flipped by the police and became a, a police informant. They'd put really heavy pressure on him saying, look, we're going to deport your family, your your parents, everything, uh, you know, and then you at the end of your sentence, if you don't cooperate with us. So he did, unbeknown to me at the time. So he got released. And to cut a long story short, he eventually led the police to me. Um, I'd had to go on the run from Britain after another laboratory got raided in Edinburgh. I uh, got smuggled out of the country in the boot of a car by the Turkish mafia, disappeared to France, decided to do one last job, as there is always one last job. And, yeah, flew to Ecuador, kind of almost knowing I wouldn't be coming back. Um, 
a lot of people say, well, why did you do it? And I, the reason being, I knew I was fucked uh, because the 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 laboratory that they'd raided in Edinburgh, I'd very nearly been arrested in it. They had evidence connecting me to it, and I knew that the the British police were coming for me. So hence the reason I disappeared and uh, went to France, went on the run. So I knew it was only a matter of time before they they they, they came knocking. So I had sort of decided to just carry on for as long as I could until the day came. Uh, you know, it's almost suicidal to some extent. So, but you've done that twice, right? Because when you first got into the tent injection cocaine story, you took it upon yourself to take that risk, and actually, it was actually something I wanted to ask you. So, I know the context was a bit. Oh no, but yeah, yeah, I wasn't going to be bringing this one back. But I guess what yeah, I'm trying yeah. to get to is, you know, it's kind of like <clears throat> you're fatalist in that sense. Like what, what, what drove At that, that time? Yeah. 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 But even, okay, maybe let's put that, the, the Ecuador arrest aside. The, you know, when you were, you took it on yourself to try this thing out, to take the risk. Why, what, the first what, one. The first one. Yeah. Like what, what, did, why did you do that? Because I, I didn't want to be sending, because it was, it was going to be my job to find other passengers to send. And I didn't really want to be sending other people. Uh, to do something that I hadn't already done myself because it would be, I wouldn't be able to tell them what to do, what to look out for, how to oh, do I it. What you're okay. So do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do know. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So, so Ecuador, go back. Yep. Go. Yeah. So, yeah. So fly to Ecuador. I was waiting for Mule to come over to collect the tent. Uh, my girlfriend flew out to Ecuador because I was going to show her around for a couple of weeks after I'd concluded the business. And, I'd been there three days. I'd taken possession of the tent. It was in the hotel room I was staying in. Uh, my girlfriend arrived. She was there four hours and we'd just been out to dinner, got back to the hotel room and all hell broke loose and I got arrested. Well, we both got arrested by the Ecuadorian police and Interpol at the behest of the British authorities. So we were taken into custody. They obviously knew the tent was there. Um and I was charged with trying to traffic uh, just under eight kilos of coke. Because in Ecuador, they don't extract the cocaine from the tent. They just weigh the whole thing. Whatever the cocaine's in, be it a whole container of, of, of molasses or whatever, they, they, they weigh the whole lot. So you could have had one kilo in that tent. It wouldn't have mattered because they just weigh the whole lot, poles included. <laughs> um. So luckily for, oh, kind of luckily for me, it was a small tent at the time. This one was a small, not a big 10-man tent. Um, so, yeah, get charged with uh, trying to traffic eight kilos of cocaine out of Ecuador. Managed to get my girlfriend out, out, of, out of trouble after about uh, uh, four months, four or five months. Start trying to bribe the judges, trying to pay off the police, do, doing whatever I can to get out of there, do you know what I mean? Problem was the British police were so on top of this case that they they came over to Ecuador on four different occasions to make sure that I wasn't going to get out. Whatever was happening, they found out that I was trying to bribe the police. Uh, uh, sorry, and and the judge. So I uh, they requested that I be sentenced twenty five years, which is the maximum sentence. And at that time, you would have done twenty five years straight. Um, I managed to pay off the judge. I managed to get it down to. I managed to get twelve years. But the British police had said, look, if you get sentenced to less than 10 years or do less than six in, in actual prison, then we will extradite you at the end of your sentence and re-sentence you back in Britain. 
after you finished here to another 20 or 25. So I actually had to say to the judge, don't give me less than 10 years in prison, please, which was just, (laughs) (laughs) you can imagine how I felt. So he gave me, he gave me 12 and the plan was like a sentence to 12 and then let the heat die down. And after a while, pay, pay some more money and get it reduced down to six and get out after three. Of course, that never happened uh, because the British police were putting so much pressure on the judges that they, they were, they were scared to uh, become involved to, you know, too much. So Yeah. Went into the British, uh, went into the Ecuadorian prison system, tried to escape from the first prison I was in, in Quito on a couple of occasions. Uh, so I got transferred out of there after two years, sent to Guayaquil in the south of Ecuador, which was the third most dangerous prison at the time in Ecuador. Uh, sorry, in South America. Uh, a prison that was completely gang controlled, 8,000 prisoners in 26 wings split pretty much roughly in half between the two gangs that were at war with each other. Handguns, machine guns in there, kilos of C4, hand grenades, machetes, just commonplace, murder every day, people getting extorted, tortured, just horrific. Uh, The guards were all paid off by the gang. Even the director of the prison was paid off by them. So completely corrupt. There was no one to turn to, nowhere to run, and yeah, you were just in a bad place. So how did you survive that? I mean, 12 years in that environment uh, yeah. as a British person, uh, and obviously people know your story, um, you know, like what what was your strategy to to get through? I mean, not only mentally, I mean, but I mean, dealing with people who <laughs> will happily cut your head off. Yeah, I mean, I, qu- I quickly realized that their main focus in the prison was money. That's what they were, they were primarily concerned about, was generating money for their families outside. Many of them were much happier being inside prison than on the street because they were actually making so much money in the prison from the drug trafficking, the alcohol, they were taxing everything coming into the prison, even the Coca-Cola. Um, I mean, there were shops in the, re- in, in the prison restaurants with families living in there with their children going to school in the day. I mean, it was it was like a small town contained within walls with, with security around the perimeter. Uh, the only real security was around the perimeter. Uh, so if you breached that, the, the guards would open up on you and try and shoot you. But within the prison, the, the gang controlled everything. They controlled the, the security. They controlled everything. They were the law in there. So realising that money was their main objective. Um, I decided to make myself appear useful to them, uh, i.e. that I could be potentially useful to them in the future for trafficking or that I could maybe be helpful in some way during the time that I was in there. Uh, Just, you know, just trying to be clever, uh, you know. Mm. And I've always been able to get on with anyone, pretty much, in any walk of life. I mean, I've met presidents, down to street urchins, you know, I've met and everyone in between. So, you know, I, I can talk to most people on a level. I will always treat everybody I meet equally until they prove differently. And therefore I think that skill managed to keep me alive. Mm. Just about. 
<laughs> yeah, well, but this is a great point, right? Because, you know, people think IQ is the game, but actually it's EQ. It's the ability to connect with someone. I yeah. know your story and your context is not commonplace, so obviously that, that's the way it is. But the principle stands true, you know, because if it works yeah. there, it can work anywhere. And I think... One of the exactly. thing um, I think one of the things I strongly believe in is that if you're an entrepreneur, you shouldn't be pursuing uh, short-term commercial gain. You should be looking at things around long-term partnerships. Like so definitely, that's what I've always said, and that's what I, that that was the picture I always used to paint to these guys. I always because they have a very short-term mentality in South America because of the lifestyle they've lived and the amount of death and how cheap life is. There. I mean, I'm sure it's probably similar in South Africa as yeah. well to some extent, or used to be. Yeah. The you know it's very easy to get killed on in these places. Well, I mean, particularly in the prison, let alone in the street. So they, if if you offer them a dollar today, or wait a month and I give you a hundred dollars, they will they will nearly always take that one dollar on the day, really? because they don't really see much future. Uh, interesting. So I always used to try and educate them and say, look, you need to be thinking about the long term prospects of what we could do be it illegal or be it legal i mean there were huge potential legal opportunities in ecuador that i saw like what that i'm actually now pursuing like, like uh, cacao cacao oh, yes, for yes. producing okay. uh, chocolate yeah. i've just set up a company well a little while ago i set a company up and i'm just waiting for some commercial samples to come through right now huh. from ecuador of cacao because the the ecuadorian cacao is the best in the world it's it's fantastic quality uh so such as cacao they produce huge amounts of prawns uh shrimp there they've got massive tuna fisheries they grow roses i mean for growing anything they're tropical fruits uh, or flowers it's got an amazing climate and the soil is fantastic so that you know they they've got natural resources of oil and gold mm. so you know they the country is a fantastic country it's just completely mismanaged like so Africa, basically <laughs> yeah well there's a lot of countries around like, the world like that yeah i only talk from what i know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so, so, um, so going back to the the prison mates um what was the, the 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 worst thing that happened to you i know there was probably a lot of bad things but what, yeah. and then I know there must be some things. So, what was the worst thing that happened to you? And you know, while you were in that Ecuadorian prison, and what what did you learn from it? I mean, undoubtedly, the, I mean, the worst thing would have to be my mother dying whilst I was there. Never got to see her again. Uh, my my cousin, sorry, my mum died. Then my auntie died. Then my cousin died. All within about a year. Uh, around the same time, uh, I was injected. I mean, it's a long story, but I ended up with t- tuberculosis. I became chronically ill. I then found my best friend, another English guy. He was murdered and hung. They hung him up in his cell. So I found his body. I uh, tried to revive him. Um, so that all happened around the same sort of time. And then they told me that I had to do another five and a half years on top of the six that I'd just done, thinking that I was about to get released. That's so, with your shit, eh? Yeah, so at that point, I became completely nihilistic. And I thought, well... You know, I remember saying to the people, I said, well, look, if you're telling me that there's nothing I can do to change the decision of the parole board, uh, they they gave me like 9% remission. So it would have meant doing 11 years, basically, out of 12. 
So I said to them, like, so you're telling me there's there's nothing I can do to change this decision now? They said, no. And I said, well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a real fucking pain in your ass. I'm going to start dealing drugs. I'm going to just going to become a nightmare because, you know, that's how everybody else is in this prison. So I'm just going to follow suit. So that's what I did for a while because I, I, I didn't think I was going to get out of there. I couldn't see any way, bearing in mind I was chronically, I was now chronically sick with TB. I couldn't see any way I was going to survive another five and a half years. Yeah. You know, A, I was ill, and B, I'd nearly been killed on several occasions. I'd been through gunfights. I'd witnessed people getting shot, cut up in front of me with machetes, electrocuted, drowned, dismembered, disemboweled, beheaded. I mean, everything. Every, every which way method you can imagine of, of killing, I'd witnessed by that point. And... And and nearly being killed myself on several occasions, and I was like, "There's you know, there's no way I'm going to survive another five and a half years, so I might as well just, you know, do whatever to to, to I don't know to try and survive." Mm. But we got transferred to a, the 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 government built a whole new prison estate because things just got so out of hand in, in the prison that I was in. It was just becoming just like the wild west. So the government built a whole new prison estate and they transferred everybody en masse to these new sort of higher security prisons. And that is probably what saved my life. Uh, they, they put in a new healthcare system and I finally got treatment for the TB. Uh, so I became, that became dormant, uh, started to recover. And yeah, I, I think what kept me going throughout all of this I, I remember saying to my family every year, every six months, I you know I remember saying I'll be out next year, I'll be out next year. But again, when you know when I was told that I had to do another five and a half years, I, you know you can imagine how that must have felt after having just done six, thinking I was getting released, and then being told you've got you've got to start your sentence again. My mum's just died. I mean, to some extent, I was relieved that she had done because having to, if I'd have had to tell her that I was there for another five and a half years, it probably would have killed her anyway. Yeah, it's uh, my just me if I could maybe share. My mom passed away quickly uh, uh, yeah. last year, um, uh, August, no, October 3rd. Um, and it was also your mate that had a brain uh, aneurysm. Same same story yeah. with, with my mom. She she died really, really quickly right. and uh, was taken from us. And she was re- you know relatively young and she was only 69 or whatever. Um, and it was so sudden. And, you know, it's a, I know you were in prison, which makes it worse, but, you know, when, when it happens quickly like that, like a car crash or a motorbike yeah, yeah. accident or something, like somebody drowns or whatever, and it's quick and it's unexpected, it's such a, it's such a shock to, um, especially when it's your mom, because yeah. you know, she brought you into the world after all. Um, and, and the finality, of it, you know, like, it's just, it's like, you, she'll never answer a call again. She'll never respond to a WhatsApp. She'll... She's just gone, you know, and it's yeah. just like, fuck. It's like, how do you deal with that, you know? And so yeah. one of the things um, to or that I learned from that experience was um, how short uh, life is and how unexpected. How things. fragile it is, definitely. Dude, totally fragile. Yeah. Totally yeah, yeah. fucking fragile. And the other thing to say is that it made or it has made me appreciate things way more 
than, yeah, yeah. Uh, than you know, uh, than what I did before because I took a lot of things for granted. Like, no, she always be there, and we were kind of. I wasn't talking to her as much as I should have, and you know, and now suddenly you're sitting in the, on the train of regret. You know, there's nothing you can yeah, do yeah. about it, and so there's the finality of it all. But what I do live with now is a very, I would say, a much stronger sense of appreciation for for my life and how fragile well, life is. I um, mean that. For me, I mean, you can imagine what I've been through. Yeah, I mean, Crazy. that totally, I totally get with what you're saying. I mean, for me, I wake up every day and I'm just relieved that I'm even breathing. Yeah, you know, I just every day is a blessing. At the end of the day, it's just like you know, I wake up and I'm like, wow, I'm alive. I could go, I can open the door and walk out the door, and I'm free. And just, yeah, just, I mean, a lot of people don't get this because, like you say, they're just caught up in the rat race and they're living their lives. And until it happens to you, until one of your friends or family or whatever just gets taken from you suddenly like that, or maybe it happens a couple of times yeah. to make you wake up, you you don't you don't you know until it's happened to you, you, you just you, you can't no understand what, Nobody understands exactly. It's, until it's difficult it to explain. You're just like, yeah, I'm sorry for your loss. No, you fucking not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're, um, you're not really sorry because you don't really understand. I mean, you know, if you talk yeah. to someone that grieves, you you know they know, and so yeah. when and if someone's lost their mom and you're talking about your loss or your dad or whatever the case is, like the in, the the conversation between someone that's that's experienced true loss uh, and suffered yeah. greatly, it you know, it's not lip service to. I'm sorry for you. Yeah, yeah. I know that's coming from a good place, but you don't really know. You don't really get it. And it's hard for people to, to converse about your loss. In, yeah. you know, so they just pay lip service to it. I mean, again, as well, slightly different tangent, but I mean, I, I know I've been doing these podcasts and stuff, but uh, I mean, generally in everyday life, I don't really talk to people about what I've been through mm. and stuff because generally people will think, no, there's no way that's impossible. That can't happen in a prison. You know, things like that don't happen. But you only have to look at the news of what's just to to see that actually, yes, what I'm saying is true and even worse than what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's difficult. Again, you know, it's like a soldier that's been to war. It's difficult for someone who hasn't been through that experience Absolutely. to relate to it. Absolutely. So, My dad also, he was in Afghanistan for seven years. He was in the special forces. Wow. He's been in the military for 30 years, dude. I don't even know how yeah, shit that guy's done. And if I yeah. ask him about it, he's like, you know, he, he, you know you're not going to get like the detail. Yeah. It's just, hey, man, I went to war. And that's all you need to know. I'm not here to talk yeah, about yeah. my story. And this is exactly what, you, what you're saying, right? So, Oddly, oddly enough, you being in Joburg, my, my uncle from, on my mum's side used to be in Joburg. He was involved. He was not a good person. Mm-hmm. He was involved back in the, in the 70s. He was in the in government, very high up, military. Really? Head of the police. Uh, yeah. He had Vavorts, the president of Vavorts yeah. was at yeah, my uncle's you. wedding. Oh uh, God, he was involved really? in apartheid and he was very bad, very bad person. I only ever met him six, seven times. And he wanted me to go into the military. And of course, my mum hated this guy. And, you know, I didn't. But I, I do sometimes wonder what would have happened if I had gone into the military. Well, A, would I still be alive? And B, because he would have seen me through and up through the ranks very quickly. Dude, you would have gone, to, I, jail. You would have gone to the same place. Just in a different country. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 
No, you would have. That's that's yeah. like legit, dude. That oak, you know, <laughs> like yeah, you know, come on, man. Like, there's only one place you wind up if you're doing shit like that. So, oh yeah, I know, I agree. You know yeah, what I mean? totally. So yeah, yeah, so but listen, I, I just want. I know I'm cognizant of time. We have run over, so I wanted to kind of ask you maybe two things. So the first yeah. thing is, um, what are you doing now? So you know, so what yeah. are you doing now? I know you're starting business stuff. You're doing all the speaking. Um, what's yeah. motivating you to do all this? Talk? Like, what's your message to to the world? Uh, basically, I mean, you know, throughout my time in prison, I learned, like you say, how finite life is and how fragile it is. I would just say, just cherish every day, just love your family, keep your family close to you, respect others. Do not get involved in drug trafficking because it is no good. Um, it will only end in trouble. Um, just try and make the best out of every situation, really. No matter how bad something is, you can always draw something positive out of every bad situation. Mm. Well, almost every bad situation. Um, but yeah, just uh, don't give up. Just keep going. Whatever you know, whatever life throws at you, there's always something you can do about it. Take a different turn, go in a different direction, get back up, start again. Yeah. What else are you going to do? Keep persevering, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm. I'm doing I'm, I'm going i'm just starting again because obviously covid came along and stopped a lot of stuff happening but um i'm just starting up again go i'm just about to start going into schools uh doing talks with you know students uh, to try and get you know try and maybe help and stop any of them getting involved in this sort of stuff mm. um i'm going into universities talking to criminology departments all sorts of stuff um, I'm also writing the prequel to my first book. Uh, I just pitched the, the first one, which was El Infierno, which was uh, published by Ebre Penguin. Awesome. Um, you can buy that on Amazon. Uh, so I'm writing the prequel to that one with a view to hopefully getting a Netflix series uh, up and running. Uh, which, or something. which, by the way, have you watched that movie on Netflix called Pavil- Pavilion? 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 Uh... Pavilion. Papillon. Papillon. Uh, Papillon. Yeah, yeah, you know prisoner. it's a book. You know it's a book. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's an old book, but I watched the movie. I've, I've read the book as well a couple uh, of times whilst I was in prison. It's a fantastic story. Oh, dude, it. they would have given you some uh, motivation, eh? Yeah, it did. <laughs> motivation to escape. In fact, I remember reading Papillon when I was in prison in, in Quito, and, and that was what drove me to try and escape. <laughs> <laughs> I was got. I had all these plans to go through the Amazon to Brazil, and you know yeah. where they didn't have extradition down the down down the Amazon River. Yeah, would have been a journey. Yeah, it would have. Did you ever try and escape? Oh yeah, yeah. We we, we bought a uh, a cell on another wing on the ground floor and had somebody start digging a tunnel out of there. That's why I got transferred out of the first prison in Quito. Oh right, uh, too much of a flight risk. Yeah, we we were going to try and. Because some of the Colombians I became friendly with were ex-FARC members. And they were talking about blowing the wall of the prison with an RPG uh. Uh, and then have a mass escape out of the prison. Um, or a helicopter lift off the top of the roof was, <laughs> was another option, but it was too expensive at the time. Yeah. Well, so we I, looked at all sorts of stuff. I, I'm sure you did. I'm surprised you didn't get out, to be honest with you. you know, yeah. If, if the prisons yeah. were run and everybody was corrupt, like why couldn't you just go, hey, man? Well, I did start. I did. I did try that as well, but I think that was another reason I got transferred because uh, I remember just before <laughs> some of the guards came to me and started going, "Oh, yeah, we can get you out for X, Y, and Z," and I was like, "Yeah." And then suddenly I get transferred. I was like, mm. mm-hmm. "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> Maybe they weren't so corrupt, <laughs> <laughs> dude. You were like the uncommon bad boy of of uncommon bad men. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> so uh, look, cool. let's, Peter, let's wrap this up, dude. Um, one more question okay. for you. Um, <clears throat> why do you do what you do now? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Some days it's difficult, believe me. Some days it is difficult to get out of bed. Uh, you know, particularly if I, you know, I've had a bad day or, you know, bad dreams. Because I do quite often dream about being imprisoned and, and going through shit I've been through again. Uh, you know, PTSD kicking in and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just have uh, have a drive inside me that just yeah, gets me up, as it obviously does you as well. Yeah. Uh, it keeps me going. Awesome, buddy. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for inviting um, me on. And I hope that. And you and you have redeemed South, South Africa. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's fine, dude. It's a, we'll keep that conversation between you and me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um but on a serious note man um uh, i i think um your, your story is truly unique and different um and i hope that it has given our audience around the world a perspective on on a few things like what not to do but also that it's possible to change your life around and make a difference and it's never too late to start yeah, making totally. a difference right yeah definitely thank Great. you peter for your time brother thanks everybody thanks. we'll see you again soon cheers bye bye Hi there, guys, and thank you so much for checking out the Matt Brown Show. If you want more content like this, head on over to YouTube where you can catch my Million Dollar Principles channel and more interviews on the Matt Brown Show YouTube channel. Get weekly thought pieces and advice and so, so, so much more. And don't forget to like and subscribe for more Matt Brown Show episodes. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.